everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 117 of the John Riley Project. Today is Friday, March 6, 2020. Happy Friday, everybody. And we are broadcasting, as we always do, from the city in the country, Poway, California, 920. Six four. That's our zip code here. And um, anyways, we're we're gonna have some fun here. You know, how was your Super Tuesday? Was your Super Tuesday super? We're gonna break down the uh, the results of the Super Tuesday uh, vote from a few days back. We'll take a look at the local races. I really want to focus there because uh, I think from our podcast, you know, we we have a little bit of a local angle. I think that's what makes us a little bit special. Uh, but we'll also talk about um, some national issues as well because. You know, there was a big presidential primary that we went through a few days ago. So we'll talk about that. Um, and, uh, you know, we there's so much to get into in this podcast because while we're reviewing the Super Tuesday results, we had multiple guests here in the JRP podcast studio that were running, that were actually on the ballot. We had Fernando Garcia was a guest here, um, an independent candidate running in the 53rd district. We also had Pete Murray here, who was running for judge. Um, we also had a, a community activist, Gabby Dow, here in the podcast studio, and she shared her thoughts on a lot of the local races. Of course, she's a big backer of numerous candidates, including Barbara Bree for San Diego mayor, Marnie Von Wilpert for the um District 5 on the San Diego City Council, which covers this North County inland area where we are, you know, in the Rancho Bernardo, Rancho Peñasquitos, Forest Ranch, Carmel Mountain Ranch area. Um, of course, we're I'm in Poway, so we, we're not really represented on the city council. But Gabby doesn't live too far from here. And so our neighbors are, you know, intent on learning about that district. And of course, Steve Voss here, the mayor of Poway, running in District 2 for San Diego County Supervisor. So we're going to take a look at some of these races and some of these connections here locally. Um, and I'll share my thoughts. Uh, I, I shared earlier uh, in a podcast about a week ago of what my ballot is and how I voted. So we'll kind of break that down. Um, but you know, before we dig in, um, I just want to... Talk about the San Diego State Aztecs. Man, I'm just fired up. They, they had a great game yesterday, fell behind a little bit early. The defense wasn't working all that well. We're down four to Air Force at the half, got down as much as eight in the early part of the second half, and then just stormed back one by 13. Now they're playing tonight at 6 p.m. against Boise State in the Mountain West Conference semifinals. Uh, a bunch of my friends are already out in Las Vegas. I know more are heading out tomorrow, uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to the ball game at six o'clock. So this podcast will definitely be recorded before then, and maybe I'll get some of it posted before the game. Um, the other uh, comment I want to make is, man, we had David Leland here in the podcast studio a couple of days ago. Just love having this young man here. What a great sports fan, sports journalist, has so much insight, has really the superpower of recollecting data and statistics and records and player performance. Uh, just love breaking down the Padres, spring training, breaking down the San Diego State Aztec program. Uh, just a really great young man. So always love having him on. He'll be here back in the podcast studio in later in March. We're probably going to be talking about Selection Sunday when the NCAA brackets are created. And I'm sure he'll be here 
right around Padres opening day because we'll take a look at the roster and how it all sorts out. So, um, yeah, I just love having guests here in the podcast studio. I mean, I'm doing this one solo, flying solo, which I enjoy doing too. But if I had my druthers, I'd have guests here all the time. So, you know, this is uh, just a shout out to everybody here in my audience that are listening or watching. If you know of guests that would like to appear on the John Riley Project, please reach out to me. You can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You fill out a form. Let me know if you're interested or you can seek me out on Facebook or Twitter, John Riley Project. And on Twitter, I'm John Riley Poway. Um, but always, you know, there's always an open invitation in this podcast for any political candidate. If you're running, I don't care if you're running for dog catcher or city council or school board, or if you're running for president of the United States or state Senate, I mean, any political candidate is welcome to join me here to share their thoughts and opinions. And then, of course, I'm always interested in, in um, talking with other people here in our North County inland area of San Diego and entrepreneurs, athletes, community activists, authors, journalists. So if you'd like to appear here on the podcast, you know, give me contact me and let me know. Um, all right. Let's break down the local ballot and. Yeah, there, there's so many different categories. There were school bond measures, there were housing issues, there were congressional races, mayoral races, city council races, um, just a lot going on. Um, but let's let's start with the school bonds because that was an issue that I've been very vocal about, um, and you know, particularly because here at Poway Unified, they, they had Measure P, which was the four hundred forty-eight million dollar bond, and the fact that um, uh, that was on the ballot, and I was very outspoken against it. And let's take a look and see how it did. And I'm pulling up my Registrar of Voters website here on my tablet. And Poway Unified Measure P did come up short, 48% yes, 40, 52% no. And they needed to get to 55%. So they were essentially 7% off. Um I figured this measure was definitely going to lose, and it lost. I'm surprised that it got as close as it did. I figured they would probably only be in the 30% area, but they got almost half. They got 48%, which is remarkable. Um, they've already said that they're going to come back in November if this fails, and that if it doesn't pass again in November, then they're going to start making all kinds of cuts. And I've often said they should have been making cuts a long, long time ago, um, obviously, Repairs of facilities like leaky roofs and broken air conditioners, those should have been fixed long, long ago. But they've been spending money on raises for management and teachers and school employees. And, you know, I'm sure everyone would like to see teachers make more money and other people make more money. But, you know, they've only got so much to go around. This was a proposition here to tax people more. Um, you know, I'm, I talk about this podcast about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know, when they start adding more and more taxes, I mean, we're already taxed to the hilt in California. Our income tax is the highest. Our um, gas tax is the highest. Our state level sales tax is the highest in America. Our corporate taxes are near the highest. Our capital gains, I think, are the highest. I mean, we can go down the list. And even our property tax bills from a percentage basis may not seem that high, but the bill we have, the check we write once or twice a year, that's a big nut. Um, so the fact that this school district wants to keep coming back to us, asking us to pay more and pay more and pay more, at some point you got to say, hey, man, you guys got to live within your means. 
we're trying to do the same in our family in terms of how we manage our dollars. We've got to prioritize our expenses. You need to do the same darn thing. So I was glad to see that lose. But what was interesting is that almost all of the school bond measures lost. I think there were six of them and five of the six lost. Um, I think the only one that won was the one in San Ysidro. And even Prop 13 lost. That was the the state-level school bond measure. And um, how... How, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I have those results here because that was a state level one and I'm on the County Registrar of Voters website. But I know that one didn't pass as well. And it was very interesting because normally when there are anything related to schools, school bonds, usually some people just by instinct just vote yes. You know, schools, yes. Schools, yes. Um, there's a lot of people that vote that way. I am the opposite. Um, I'm not necessarily schools, no, but I'm always tax increase, no. Bond? No. Uh, Because every time our taxes go up, that restricts the amount of my own money I can keep. And every time um, bonds are increased, that usually is directly linked to a tax increase or indirectly, it's going to absorb a lot more of the tax dollars that I'm already spending. And then that usually turns into a tax increase later on down the road when they say they're struggling. So um, I, my instinct is the opposite, but it seems like maybe people are starting to come around. Maybe they're starting to say, you know, hey, schools, <laughs> live within your means. We're already feeling the pressure because, you know, here in California, the cost of living is outrageous. And, you know, we've been talking about the housing crisis. And, you know, at some point, you know, people have just got to say to these politicians, no, you know, we, you just got to just say no, just like Nancy Reagan, you know, just say no. And I'm glad that the voters did that. So Poway Unified will be coming back in November. You can count on it. They, we talked about all of the financial backing they were getting from the construction industry. They'll be back again because, you know, basically they spent by my last count, about $144,000 was contributed to the Yes on Measure P campaign. But the potential payoff is $448 million. So that's an easy gamble. That's an easy bet for the people in the construction industry. You figure they're going to make that bet again in November, and they're probably going to make it again in 2022 and, and until the bond passes. And we went through that same process before um, that led to the billion-dollar bond. Are we going to go through it again? So we'll see. So, um, yeah, so the school the school bond measure, Measure P, failed. The state-level Prop 13 failed. And, again, I wish they wouldn't have called it Prop 13. They should, you know, it's kind of like the way the Padres retired number 19 and number 51 uh, for Gwynn and Hoffman. They should retire number 13 for propositions because it's confusing. And in November, there is going to be a proposition on the ballot that's going to be a threat to the original Prop 13 from the late 70s. It's going to be a property tax increase um, on commercial property, which is going to be the first in a series of attacks of trying to tear down the entirety of Prop 13. So that's coming. But again, I wish this ballot proposition, they would have picked another number or, or something just to alleviate that confusion. Okay, um, housing issues. We had Measure A and B, and both of them lost. Um, measure A uh, lost. I was happy to hear that. Uh, measure A was the one, kind of like Prop FF here in Poway, where in order to change the county's general plan, it required a majority vote of the voters. And I'm, I'm not a fan of that for a number of reasons. Um, number one, I I think we need to be encouraging more housing as a general rule. More housing in urban areas where we can build it densely. 
more housing in suburban areas where we can add more mixed use and even in some cases, some more dense housing. And then definitely in the rural areas, I think there's opportunity to build as well because we have a housing crisis. We don't have enough housing units to satisfy the people that are here. Um, it's it's resulting in um, a lot of external effects, you know, high rent, high high prices of real estate, which maybe for some people is a good thing, uh, but if you're buying, it's not. And then, you know, there, there's all other, other kinds of challenges. People have to live further away and it creates all kinds of other problems. You also have um, issues related to um, uh, homelessness, because when the price of entry level uh, rental property goes up, it makes it easier for people to slip into homelessness. So um, I was very happy to see Measure A lose. Uh, measure B um, was the one where they were going to build the new housing. I think it was about 2,200 units um, somewhere up near between Escondido and Fallbrook. I'm not sure exactly where it is. I think it might have been where the 76 and the 15 intersect, somewhere near there. And um, that one failed. And it's interesting that the voters said collectively that they don't want to be the ones making the choice. They want the city or the county representatives to make the choice, which, again, is good. I think Measure A is all about representative democracy, not pure democracy. And I think representative democracy is better. Um, But it was interesting that they voted when they had the chance to vote, they voted no. But I think there were a lot of other issues swirling around that particular project. But it is interesting as a general rule, when voters have an opportunity to vote for more development, they often vote no. And a lot of that's the nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. Uh, There are people that are also generally, I, I don't know what the right word is, but just angry or envious or upset or feel threatened by developers. You know, the developers are apparently these evil people um, and they they, de- they always get a bad rap. And really what these developers are doing, from my perspective, is a good thing. I mean, they're building homes. They are, you know, trying to create um, opportunities for people to live. And of course, they're being compensated for that. I mean, just like you would be compensated for your own job, your own work. But I don't necessarily think developers should be framed as this sort of you know, someone that should be feared or slammed or or prevented from having their own liberty, their own freedom to um, to build. And at the same time, I always think about it in terms of property owners. I mean, if you own property and you want to build a house on your own property, you should be able to build a house on your own property without having to get the majority of voters to agree with you. I mean, imagine if your whole life was dependent on getting 50% of the community to agree with you so you could do what you wanted. I mean, it's kind of a crazy deal the way these are set up. I was disappointed to see Measure B um, lose, but I'm sure we're going to see more of this. And actually with um, Measure A passing, um, excuse me, with Measure A failing, um, does that mean we'll get to a situation where that housing project in the um, Escondido Fallbrook area might be approved by the County Board of Supervisors. I'm not sure. I know different areas are zoned differently and there are different rules. So we'll see. But I, yeah, I'm just generally more, I'm supportive of more building, more housing. That's why I've been supportive of the um, development at, uh, at Stone Ridge. You know, Kevin McNamara was here talking about the farm in Poway. I, I'm supportive of his plan, largely because we've got an eyesore um, of the, uh, 
of the abandoned golf course. I was even supportive of of the previous plan there of Schlesinger's plan, who I don't care for Schlesinger. I think he's an underhanded business person. We've seen his practices, but I was generally supportive of the plan uh, because the alternative is far worse. And we're experiencing that. And then, of course, we're going to be doing a lot more building in Poway along Poway Road. Once again, I'm supportive of that as well for all the reasons I've shared, property rights, housing crisis, et cetera. So, um, so we'll see. Uh, okay, let's look at some of these um, congressional races. I mean, I think uh, the, the 50th district, which is the one in East County, was a really intriguing one because there was um, Amar Campanajar, the, the Democrat. Everyone knew that he would likely advance, and he did. He got the majority of the vote. And uh, let me pull up the Registrar of Voters webpage here, and let's break down the numbers. Um, Where is it? Scrolling, scrolling on my tablet. And I know Camp and Najar came in first place. And then um, Daryl Issa came in second. Good old Daryl. So that was interesting to see him. I was always going to be a battle between Daryl Issa and Carl DeMaio to see who was going to get that last slot. And why am I having trouble finding this document here? Come on. You're up here somewhere. Forgive me. This is like the greatest thing for my podcast audience to listen to is me fumbling on my tablet trying to find the 50th district congressional race and the results. Yada, yada, yada. There's all these committees like Democratic committee and Republican committees, um, all these central committees. Interesting. There's a couple of people here locally that were running there. There was um, Terry Norwood, who was one of our guests earlier on the podcast. She was a candidate. Tori Powers, another uh, previous Poway City Council person, was a candidate on one of these district committees. So kind of nice seeing them as well. Oh, well, no. Carl DeMaio did actually win one of those um, congressional districts. He came in first place in one of the local ones, but that's not the race we're looking for. Come on. Okay. It's coming here soon. I'm just killing you guys. I'm sorry. This is just brutal. Oh, here it is. Okay. Mark Campanajar, 35.76%. Daryl Issa uh, came in with 23.5% and Carl DeMaio with 21%. So DeMaio... Two and a half percent off, um, and it works out to be roughly about three thousand and three hundred votes. He's like thirty three hundred votes behind ISA. I know they've got a lot more ballots to count because there were so many mail in ballots. Um, a lot of mail in ballots come in at the last minute, and apparently there were a lot of people that were voting last minute because. They were waiting to see how the Democratic race was going to shake out because, you know, so many of the presidential candidates were in the race in February and then suddenly out of the race right before Super Tuesday. So there's a, there was a surge of votes that came in at the end. Is Carl DeMaio going to pick up more? And I'm curious, you know, Carl DeMaio, of course, lives in Rancho Bernardo. So he's a local here. Um, you know, my instinct has always been is that when you get the initial um group of votes, you know, usually from the initial mail-in votes, that's always a really good statistical representative. In fact, the sample size of that initial wave of votes um, of those early mail-ins is usually more statistically relevant in terms of sample size than a national poll is for the president of the United States. So it's usually a really good indicator. So if DeMaio is 3,300 votes behind ISA at this point, is he going to be able to make that up? Probably not. 
Um, now, I know in the mayoral race, which we're going to get to, our third place person has been catching up to second place. But I'm not even sure that she's going to make it because it's tough to do. Um, but anyways, yeah, DeMaio um, came in third. So it's going to be just Camp and Najar and Isa they're going to advance. Now, again, this is the East County. This is like El Cajon and Lakeside, Santee. This is Alpine and it even goes up a little bit, I think, into Valley Center and even parts of eastern Riverside County. But Isa doesn't even live in that district, and neither does DeMaio. Isa, I think, still lives in Vista. So uh, the voters liked him, and it seemed like in that race there was just so many nasty and ugly television ads. It was almost like the race – I mean, everyone knew Camp and Najar was going to advance as the Democrat. It was a question of would Isa or DeMaio get the votes, and it seemed like – that whole race was who could kiss Trump's ass the most, who was the most aligned with Trump. And they were begging and pleading with their voters that they were the most aligned with Trump. And it was kind of sad the way that whole thing went out. But I still won. Um, and DeMaio, and just an interesting character. We've talked about him before. Um, a, a very um, he's a fighter. You know, whether you like DeMaio or not. And I know there's people on both sides of that. Some people love him. Some people really don't like him. You got to admit, either way, the dude is a fighter. He doesn't give up. And he has been battling in race after race. And he even led that proposition to repeal the gas tax. He's been going through a tough losing streak. But I'm guessing that people keep throwing money at him. That's going to be enough to keep his um, his campaign funds uh, or keep his campaign life going. So it looks like DeMaio will not advance. Um, and But I, I expect we're going to see him again. He's still a very young man. So I'm sure he'll appear many times coming forward. Uh, Brian Jones, um, the other uh, candidate in this race, he had 11%. It's interesting because he's the one that's, um, you know, I think he was on the city, a Santee City Council, a state assemblyman, a state senator, legitimately from that area, the the only Republican in the race that was legitimately from the area. He came in fourth. And I've already noticed that he has shifted his campaign to his reelection um, campaign for 2022 for state Senate. So he's already shifted gears. And then I just want to give a shout out here way down the list to Helen Horvath. Um, she only had half a percent, 668 votes. I, I followed Helen Horvath on Facebook. I just kind of stumbled across her. And I'll give her credit. You know, she she was out there hustling. I think she was an independent. She was had virtually no funding. But, you know, she fought and she went to a lot of those camp uh, campaign debates and met with people and and really worked it. And, and I thought she did a great job. And, and I think she should be commended for that. Um, you know, when the race was always framed as four candidates, you know, Camp and Najar, Isa, DeMaio and Jones. But she would always say, hey, what about me? You know, and um um, I, I I just think it's she's worth being pointing out because a lot of these candidates, when they run, you know they're not going to win. You wonder why they do it, but sometimes they just have something to say, and and she did. So you know, good for her. Um, going down the list, the fifty first district race wasn't very interesting. The fifty second, which is my own district, um, Scott Peters was reelected, and that's no surprise. Peters is very liked in this area. Um, I saw his he had a really good video that he posted on social media about all the alternatives to doing handshaking, you know, with fist, not even fist bumps, elbow bumps and and, you know, Asian bowing and a couple of others. It was kind of fun. And he, he's kind of a nerdy, cool guy. Um, 
And, you know, this district, um, the 52nd district, has becoming slightly more and more Democratic. So this is going to this is going to turn into a safer district where when he ran against DeMaio in 2014, it was almost a toss up area. So. Peters won, no surprise. Uh, DeBello came in second. I saw a little video of him um, in Golden Hall on election night when KUSI was interviewing everybody. And uh, he seemed like a pretty boisterous guy, like a like a fun-loving guy, big smile and a big loud voice. Uh, he came up short. But, you know, good for you, Jim, for being out there in the race. I didn't know much about Cassidy or Cunningham. Then we get to the 53rd, and this was an interesting one, too, because first place, Sarah Jacobs got approximately 30 percent of the vote. Of course, Sarah Jacobs, the daughter of Qualcomm uh, CEO Erwin Jacobs, um, or is it the I'm not sure. I think it's the daughter. It might be the granddaughter, but I'm pretty sure it's the daughter of Erwin Jacobs. Um, And I know that she had worked previously in the Obama administration. She tried to run for Congress. I think for ISIS seat um, a couple of cycles ago came up short um, and then she um, now is in the 53rd. And again, does she live in that district? I don't know. Um, I think Fernando Garcia was talking about that as well in our podcast, but she had, of course, gigantic money behind her. Um, so she came in first. That was very helpful. Georgette Gomez uh, came in second with 19 percent of the vote. Um, she's the candidate that was backed by Bernie Sanders. Um, so obviously a, a progressive. Uh, there are a number of other people in this race. In fact, I think there were 15 running. Uh, we interviewed Fernando Garcia. Uh, the only independent. In fact, I think there were 11 Democrats, three Republicans and one independent. And Fernando, you know, good guy. I mean, if you go back and watch our podcast, just a really a man of high character, um, a man that was out there doing what he believed in. It was almost fulfilling a civic responsibility. He took his campaign very, very seriously. But I'm sure he knew going in as an independent, he would be at immediately at a disadvantage because the system is largely rigged for the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, let's be real. Um, the, the Republicans and Democrats are the ones that get the attention. The Republicans and the Democrats have huge resources that they can apply to these local candidates to help them uh, work their way to victory. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he got over a thousand votes, a thousand and forty one votes. But, uh, you know, didn't quite crack one percent, came very close, point eight, three percent. I gave him a big shout out on Facebook. I'm very proud of what he did. I think he he did the right thing. He, he's a good man. And in fact, in many ways, kind of inspired me. Um, you know, I ran, uh, I, I've told this story before, I'll tell again. Uh, back in 2014, I ran here locally for the Poway Unified School District uh, for one of the school board races and came up short, lost by about 1%. And um, what was interesting is, is that I ran as an independent and you might think, oh, it's a nonpartisan race. It doesn't matter what your party is. Well, that's not true. Locally, even in the uh, the school board and the city council races, your political party makes a big difference because voters want to know that. And uh, the local political parties, you know, the San Diego County Democrats and the San Diego County Republicans will do mailers and do endorsements and promote their people. It makes a big difference. Um, And in my race in 2014, there were eight of us. 
the top three went on to win. I came in fourth. But what was interesting in my race, I was the only, I was independent. I don't know if I was the only independent, but I was definitely one of, uh, of very few independents. But the first place uh, um, person and the was a, endorsed by the Democrats. The second place person was endorsed by the Republicans. The third place person was endorsed by the Democrats. And then there was me as an independent. Um, and uh, I, I took great pride in that. And I enjoyed that campaign. Um, a lot of people have asked me if I'm ever going to run for school board again. I, I won't. I don't think – my children have aged out of the school district. I'm not as interested in that as much anymore. I mean I was largely driven by a lot of the issues I talk about in this podcast when it comes to Poway Unified about – protection of taxpayer interests, about fiscal responsibility. And this was in 2014, right after the big news of the billion-dollar bond breaking out. And I felt they needed to have some sort of fiscal sanity, some kind of message there delivered. We did well, we, but not quite well enough. Fourth out of eight, took the top three, lost by 1%. But the, my point, I guess, I'm getting to is, is that Fernando Garcia ran as an independent in a congressional race. And I, again, I have great respect for that. And it's kind of inspiring me. It's making me think, I wonder if I should do that. I wonder if I should run as an independent candidate in one of these more higher profile races. Now, if I did so, I would have no expectation of winning because I know it would be almost impossible for an independent to win for Congress to even win for a state senator or state assembly person. But I still think there's an opportunity and there's a message that needs to be delivered that a lot of these candidates simply don't speak about. You know, and I talk about the principles that I'm all about, which are limited government, um, individual rights, peace, tolerance, and free markets. And you rarely hear about those policy positions. Now, Fernando Garcia, he had his own set of positions. I thought he did a really good job kind of as a centrist, you know, not Republican, not Democrat, but sort of took the best of both worlds, got rid of the ugliness of both worlds. I thought he had a great campaign, but he did come up a little bit short. Um, and then going down the list here, a lot of other races, not very interesting. Um, but we get here to the 77th district and uh, Brian Mainshine won. He, and he beat uh, Jane June Yang Cutter. Uh, Mainshine had 55.5%, Cutter 44.5%. Um, this kind of played out as I expected. I told you, Brian Mainshine, I think he lives in Carmel Mountain, beloved in the area, um, has a lot of support. Uh, an interesting character because he switched teams. He went from being a Republican to being a Democrat. That caused a big uproar. And boy, the Republicans, man, they were angry when he flipped. Um, but he has a lot of support personally, regardless of his party. So the fact that he switched and he won makes sense. And like I said, you know, just like Scott Peters district has been demographically shifting to Demo Democrats, I would imagine that uh, Mainshine's 77th district has probably been doing the same. So in many ways, you could say maybe Mainshine saw the writing on the wall and flipping teams was one port, one aspect of really ensuring his survival. So We'll see. But he won as expected. Um, and then um, what else? We're going to go down the race. There were the judge races. And a lot of these judges, I don't really know. But the one I want to comment on is Pete Murray. Um, Pete came into the podcast studio. Like I said, I've known Pete for like 10 years. He lives around the corner from me. You know, probably if I'm at the edge of my backyard uh, fence and threw a baseball, well, maybe got a bat and hit a baseball as far as I could, and it bounced a few times, I might hit Pete Murray's front yard. So we live 
kind of close. And um, so he came by and visited. And I'm really bummed to see this, but Pete lost by about 1%. He came in third. And there were four candidates. Um, first place was Paul Starita with 3026 Tim Nader came in second at 24.84. Pete Murray, 23.05. So he lost well, like a little bit more than one and a half percent. And they took the top two. So Pete, man, I loved you. I have my sign up for you. Pete Murray sign in my front yard. Um, please run again, Pete. Uh, I really hope you do. Um, you have a lot of support here in Poway. We know you as a quality man uh, with a lot to offer. Um, and I would love to see you run again. And of course, you're always welcome to return here uh, for a podcast conversation. Uh, but was really kind of bummed to see that he came up short. I mean, Fernando Garcia, I mean, we didn't really speak this bluntly when he was here. But as an independent candidate, you have to be real, right? You knew it would be a minor miracle for him to win. But for Pete Murray, I thought he legitimately had a a very good chance to win. And you could tell by the numbers, he did have a very good chance, just came in just not enough. And it makes you wonder, in the vote for judge, most people don't know who these judges are. And you kind of wonder... Are people really making intelligent choices or are they voting randomly and kind of mucking it up? I don't know the answer to that, Um, but um, love you, Pete, and I hope you run again. Um, Going down the list, there are a lot of community college districts and San Diego Unified, which I really haven't followed since I'm a Poway guy. Um, But let's get to the uh, Board of Supervisors, uh, District 2. And this was the one involving our mayor of Poway, Steve Voss. And the the vote count came out where Joel Anderson, 37 percent, Steve Voss, 32 and a half percent, Kenya Taylor, 24 percent. And it looks like Brian Sisko, Brian Sesco, pardon me, six and a half percent. So they're taking the top two. And I think we all kind of expected it was going to be Anderson and Voss because this is an East County district, heavily Republican. Uh, Kenya Taylor, I know some people that are big supporters of Kenya Taylor. In fact, one of our previous podcast guests, uh, Kimberly Garnier, was here. Um, She has been very outspoken on Facebook supporting Kenya Taylor. I don't really know her. Um, But if you were to be objective, you would know that in the Eastern County, heavily Republican area, it would have been a tough go for uh, Kenya to win in that area and that in that um, in that community. And then Brian Sesco, the independent candidate, six and a half percent. So really, it was a question I had of who was going to come out first. Was it going to be Anderson and then Voss or was it going to be Voss and then Anderson? And Voss had been clearing, uh, cleaning up all the big endorsements. Diane Jacob, the existing uh, supervisors, um, the uh A lot of the law enforcement and a lot of the mayors in San Diego County all came out big endorsers of Steve Voss, except he didn't get the endorsement of his own political party. The Republicans instead endorsed Joel Anderson. And like I said earlier, when the local political party endorses a candidate, they're putting big money, big resources to making sure their candidate's going to win. So. Voss ended up coming up short, and I know they're still counting ballots, but it looks like it's about 5,000 ballots that he came up short. So what's interesting is, is that in this race, there were two candidates that wore cowboy hats. It was Steve Voss and Brian Sesco. So let's just say, say just for fun, if Voss got all of Brian Sesco's votes um, and the Kenya Taylor votes were spit, split evenly, that would be enough to uh, 
to win the race in, in November. Voss could consolidate the cowboy hat vote and win the whole thing. Of course, when we get to November, there'll be a heck of a lot more people voting. So a lot of things can happen. Um, and then, yeah, how, how are those Democrats, how are they going to be split? Are they going to lean more towards Anderson or more towards Voss? Um, again, I, I, I voted for Voss, um, you know, because I know the guy and he talks about how he's got, you know, he publicizes his cell phone and you can call him at any time. And, and that's that's very true. Um, I've done it before. He calls me sometimes just to check in. Um, so and at any rate, um, I'm supportive of him. Hope he does well. Um, but I'm also kind of curious to see what happens on the Poway City Council. Should he be elected to the Board of Supervisors? What's going to happen with mayor and is that going to – are one of the city council people going to go to mayor and is that going to open up a spot on the council? Are we going to have an appointment? Is it a vote? Is it going to create opportunity for new blood on the, on the local uh, Poway City Council? I'm intrigued by that process as well and we would never experience it unless Mayor Voss moves on and becomes a board of uh, – a supervisor in the county. So um, – 5,000 in this race, I mean, it's it's doable to make this up. I mean, he's not by any means um, at a huge disadvantage, but he's got some work to do. So, uh, and then, of course, KUSI loves Steve Voss. I mean, he's constantly being interviewed there. They do a good job interviewing political, can- political candidates, and it's partly why I try to have political candidates here on this podcast, because I think it, it's good for the audience. It's good for people to... Um, you know, be educated and learn about a lot of these candidates. And plus, it's selfishly good for me because I'm trying to build an audience. So um, at any rate, yeah, KOSI certainly loves Steve Voss. And I'm sure he'll be back on the air there. And then, yeah, uh, Kristen Gaspar, she won her race. That wasn't a surprise. Olga Diaz came in third in um, in that race for district number three in um uh, the county supervisor race. I met Olga Diaz once back in 2014, and she, at the time, was on the city council or was running for city council in Escondido. She's a pretty hardcore progressive, but she's a great woman. Um, really liked her energy. Um, she had a lot of really good ideas. Um, some ideas, I think, I wouldn't have supported the idea, but love the fact that she was so enthusiastic about their her ideas, had a lot of innovative approaches, I, and I thought she was a quality person. Uh, so interesting, she came in third. But again, I think that district is probably going to lean a little bit more Republican. So Gaspar won that. And then you go down the race here, and there's a lot of, you know— um, City races. Oh, yeah, the San Diego mayor. Todd Gloria came in first. I think that was expected. He had huge backing of all the labor unions. You know, just like we talk about in the Poway Unified, the school teacher union, the um, employee union play pretty pivotal roles in that race, especially the teachers. But the same thing is true for the mayoral race. There's all the different unions, like the not just the police and fire, but all the city workers. That's that quid pro quo relationship that goes on that's pretty um, – Pretty, in many cases, damaging because the unions endorse the candidate, throw big money paying to help promote that candidate. When that candidate's elected, then they kind of scratch the other guy's back, quid pro quo. They end up giving raises and pension increases and the like back to those unions. So Todd Gloria came in with like 
a little over 40% of the vote. Um, but the race for second place is the interesting one. Um, Scott Sherman came in second, the Republican, the only Republican that came in at the last minute. He came in with 24.62. And then Barbara Bree with 23.67%. Uh, Barbara Bree uh, was spoken about quite a bit by Gabby Dow when she was here. Barbara Bree, a Democrat, but really positions herself as a problem solver more so than a politician. And Gabby was sharing with me, um, and you can go back and listen to that podcast, of her, of Barbara Bree's accomplishments. And it was unbelievable the things this woman is, has done in her life. She's a dynamo, um, has done tremendous things, certainly very accomplished and has the credentials and qualifications to be married. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, the intriguing part here on one level is, you know, Gabby was here. I like Gabby. Gabby likes Bree. So in one way, I'm rooting for Barbara Bree for that on that level. But the other interesting part of this that's intriguing is that Sherman is a Republican. He got into this race late. And if Sherman didn't win and, and said we got the top two being both Democrats, that would be a major deal in San Diego County politics. Because remember, for a long time, they used to always talk about Orange County. Uh, being a solidly Republican area. Um, and people back then used to also think of San Diego as a solidly Republican area, largely because of the military influence here. This was the the thought, maybe the branding that was done 30, 40 years ago. I mean, certainly Ronald Reagan counted on Orange County. He talked about it a lot when he was running um, as a candidate for president. But over time, the demographics have shifted um, and we've seen now Orange County is no longer red. Orange County is blue. San Diego County has become more and more Democrat. Um, in fact, I think we have five congressional um, uh, representatives. And if I recall, four of the five are, Democrat, are Democrats. It used to be three of the five were Dems. Now four of the five. The city of San Diego, interestingly, has a Republican mayor but is probably the only really big city in America with a Republican mayor. Certainly um, the biggest city in California with a Republican mayor, uh, Kevin Faulkner. But he's kind of a, a centrist Republican. He's not a hardcore right-wing zealot, uh, but he is a Republican. Um, it's what you wonder now, will he be the last Republican mayor in the city of San Diego? So Scott Sherman um, came with, with 24.62%. They're still counting ballots. And Barbara Bree, interestingly, was able to gain at least 1,000 more votes. She had about a 3,000 vote delta uh, not too long ago. Um, and she's already made up 1,000 of that 3,000 as they've been tabulating and calculating these late votes. And these votes are going to continue to be counted probably for the next week or 10 days. So this is interesting because California makes it easy to vote and people can mail in votes right up until election day. People are dropping off votes. And so you know, there's a bit of a a lot of loose ends to clean up as they go through this process. Very interested to see how this plays out. My bet is that Barbara Bree will fall short for the reason I said earlier. The, the sample size already is so large that Sherman is in second. It's unlikely that these last-minute strang straggling votes are so disproportionately different than who's already voted. But the, the asterisk is, as I said earlier, 
a lot of those late votes are probably Democrats that were voting for president that were waiting until the very end. So they didn't feel like they were voting early for a candidate that might have eventually dropped out. You know, I'm sure there were some candidates might have been thinking, hey, I like Mayor Pete, but when I get to Super Tuesday, I don't know if Mayor Pete is going to be in the race and maybe they held back. And if that's the case, then that that vote that is is trickling in at the very end might be very disproportionately Democratic. And if that's the case, that could be enough to push Barbara Bree over the edge and pass Sherman, Scott Sherman at the finish line. So I'm curious to see how that one plays out. Um, then also, I think in the San Diego um, uh, City Council, like District 5, I, again, I didn't really follow this. Um, Gabby Dow was here. Marnie Von Wilpert was someone that she supported. I know she hosted meet and greets for both Barbara Bree and Marnie Von Wilpert at their home uh, for, you know, Gabby and Steve Dow. Steve Dow, another guest on the podcast. Well, anyways, um, Marnie Von Wilbert was successful. She came in first place with 39.45% of the vote. Uh, Joe Leventhal, second place with 38.31. So that's just slightly more than a 1% delta. So it was close. Um, but again, they're still counting votes, hopefully not enough to tip the scale. But it looks like um, Marnie Von Wilbert will be representing this North County Inland area. Um, which is a big part of my podcast audience. So I think we'll be seeing her on the city council. Um, and I'm just kind of scrolling through here and, and then we get to all the propositions. So that's kind of how it shook out. Um, I think the only other one worth mentioning is the is Measure C. And that's the one for the um, convention center expansion. It seems like this has been on the ballot in one form or another for like 20 years uh, because they want to keep expanding the convention center to make it more attractive um, to having more conventions here like Comic-Con to also help lock in Comic-Con long-term because when we have these big conventions, all these people come to San Diego, they stay in the hotels, they go to the restaurants, they spend a lot of money. And so a lot of the downtown interests are really big on this. But what the the thing is, is that, well, first of all, this vote was a tax increase um, and it required a two-thirds, and they're really close. I think they're within 2%. So, again, that's another race to watch as they're ca- calculating these remaining um, votes. I've always objected to this particular kind of tax. They call it a transient occupancy tax, a TOT tax. And essentially what this is, it's a tax on hotel rooms. It's a tax on rental cars. It's a tax that's targeted at tourists. Now, some people would say this is a just tax because it's targeted to the people that end up coming to use the convention center. And that makes sense to a degree. And, and, you know, by the way, I've experienced this. I remember renting a car in Arizona um, and just looking at the at the bill, and one of the line items on the bill was the baseball spring training tax, <laughs> and that's what they used to fund all those spring training stadiums. Was partly funded through this TOT tax in Arizona, but really, I've always said that a transient occupancy tax, a TOT tax, is the very definition of taxation without representation. I mean, imagine if you are a tourist in Nebraska. And you live in Nebraska and you want to come to San Diego and you're being taxed for your hotel, for your rental car. But do you have representation at the city council level, at the county board of supervisors by those entities that enact that tax? The answer is you don't because your elected representatives are still in Nebraska. <laughs> so I've often thought it was an unjust tax. It was a uh, a, a taxation without representation. So 
the people that are ultimately benefiting from this are the hotels, are the um, uh, the rental car agencies, the restaurants, et cetera. Those are the industries that really should kick in and fund the expansion of the convention center. Those are the ones that should directly fund it. And maybe they do that rather than having these crazy extra taxes. Maybe they just raise their rates and then um, they end up paying and they end up charging the, the, the people that, you know, the tourists that come in in the end. Um, but at least it won't be done coercively through a tax. So that's what I'd like to see done. But it looks like it's probably going to fail. Unless something like a little bit of magic dust uh, you know, comes in here at the end. Um, OK, before we get into the presidential race, I just want to, you know, big shout out to our friends at PowayStore.com. Uh, PowayStore.com, a place you can come and get coffee mugs, T-shirts, stickers, all kinds of different uh, designs and ideas around Poway products. Um, got this uh, they got this great shirt out there with Poway, the city and the country with the cowboy hat. In fact, I got it here on this coffee mug. Um, so uh, the friends at Poway Store were able to give me one of these. I was really grateful. Um, I know they've been, they say they're going to be putting up more products there. So visit PowayStore.com and get your Poway gear. All right, let's move on to the presidential race. And we're kind of chugging along here. Um, so really interesting how everything shook out on, on Super Tuesday, both before Super Tuesday and after Super Tuesday. And I think the big thing is, is that Biden has emerged victorious in all of this. And I think a couple of weeks ago, we would never have thought this was possible. I've often said that Joe Biden is from a galaxy far away and from a time long, long ago. Dude is um, is a bumbler. He's inept. He's showing his age. Um, I don't think he's ready for prime time, but he has the benefit of being a former vice president. He has the benefit of being aligned with President Obama, who still is incredibly popular in the United States. He's got those credentials, that history going for him. He's also sort of perceived as a safer bet. You know, many people think, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, if they were elected, they are too progressive, they are too divisive, and would set up a very easy victory for Trump in November. Biden, I think some people are thinking, could actually have a good chance to win. That's an interesting calculus. I've often felt that the way the Democrats win is when they capture the imagination of the voter, that that the voters are not just voting against the Republican, that they're actually voting for the Democrat. Uh, The Democrats were successful with that with largely young up and coming candidates like John F. Kennedy, like um, uh, President Bill Clinton, like Barack Obama. And even Jimmy Carter was sort of an up and comer. I think he was elected when he was the age of 60, but he was a governor and he was, you know, kind of rose to the national scene. Um, The Democrats have been successful when they've anointed someone like that, that has captured the imagination of the voters. Um, I don't see uh, Joe Biden as that kind of guy. I think Joe Biden is the is essentially an anti-Trump vote. Um, so I, I'm, I, I think it's interesting how, you know, Mayor Pete after, um, it was after Nevada, I think, is when Mayor Pete stepped down, or was it after South Carolina? I can't recall. Maybe it was South Carolina. Mayor Pete stepped down, and then Amy Klobuchar stepped down shortly thereafter, and they immediately went and endorsed Biden. And I'm sure 
promises are made, and that's a little bit of quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Um, so I'm sure if Biden is elected, I would imagine Klobuchar and Buttigieg may very well either be vice presidential candidates or cabinet appointees. We'll see. Um, and then shortly after Super Tuesday, Bloomberg um, stepped down. Um, so all these forces, you know, really aligning, the, the, the smoke is clearing, and it's really setting up to be Biden and Sanders. Um, and uh, it's just interesting. I, you wonder, like, party politics, how much coercion, how much arm twisting are they doing behind the scenes? And then are these candidates that, you know, obviously stepping down from the race must have been tough for them. Um, but, you know, they got to put a, a big smile on it and a big friendly face because I'm sure they're thinking there's a big payoff for them down the road. Um it's also interesting, too, that coming out of Super Tuesday, you know, Biden now has the most delegates. And I think the projections, I know uh, Nate Silver from 538, who's a you know pretty well-known uh, polar and a, and a well-known, I guess, predictor of outcomes. And he's he's usually pretty good. He's certainly not perfect. But they're predicting that Biden is, is going to win this. He's not going to just simply get a plurality, the most votes or the most delegates for the convention. But they think Biden is going to ultimately get a majority of the delegates, making a brokered convention, you know, moot, which is kind of bumming me out. I The whole idea of a broker convention, I thought would have been really fun and fascinating. But it looks like it's going to be um, Biden is going to you know, eventually be victorious over Sanders unless something happens. And like I said, I've got some uh, from really good friends that are hardcore Bernie people. And boy, are they, they're aggressive on social media. Um, and you could tell that the wind has sort of been taken out of their sails to a degree. I'm curious to find out what happens. Like, it, let's just say Bernie doesn't win the nomination. You know, there's going to be a lot of disaffected uh, voters that are true believers in, in Bernie, uh, hardcore progressives. Are they going to suck it up and vote for Biden in the end? Or would Bernie try to go third party. You know, maybe, you know, he's 78 years old. This might be his last hurrah. Maybe he decides to go third party just to see what he can do uh, and maybe pull something out. I'm curious to see if that happens. Um, and then, of course, if it ends up being um, Biden against Trump, you know, I'm still intrigued what happens with our friends on the right wing if they're going to all fall in line with Trump. And there's still a lot of disaffected Republicans that are reluctantly voting for Trump. But would some of them maybe peel off and, um, you know, vote independent, vote third party, um, form their own party, maybe after Trump is reelected? I think there's a I, I'm starting to feel more erosion breakdown of the two-party duopoly of the Republicans and Democrats, their their influence is becoming less and less. They still have great influence, um, as we've talked about in these local races. But I think seeing their influence diminish is a great thing, because after all, there are more independent voters, no party preference voters, than there are Republican voters. And there are more independent, no party preference voters than there are Democratic voters. So there's all of these independents, yet there is no party or candidate that is largely aligned with them. That's why I talked about Fernando Garcia. What he was doing is so great. Um, and I, I think there's opportunity for more independents to come forward because there's a huge group of voters that if they would just sort of get over the lesser of evils voting, I think there would be a great opportunity. 
which as an aside is another reason to vote for rank, to push for ranked choice, which is why one of the reasons why I liked Andrew Yang, because he was for ranked choice and ranked choice essentially creates a system where it makes it easier to vote for independence. It makes it easier to vote your conscience rather than voting for a lesser of evils dynamic. Now, since Bloomberg got out, there was this one tweet that's been making the rounds that I've got to read it. And it was from a woman named Makita Rivas, and she's a journalist. And she said in this tweet, and, and this tweet was shared on, on the national news, on MSNBC, and it was being taken very seriously. And it said, Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads. And by the way, that's true. Uh, the U.S. population is $327 million. So he could have given each American a million dollars and still had money left over. I feel like a million dollar check would be life changing for most people, yet he wasted it all on ads and still lost. <laughs> and you read this, you're like, this person can't even do basic mathematics. If he spent $500 million on ads and the U.S. population is $327 million, that means he could have given every American about a dollar and change. But she thought that we, she could give every person a million dollars and change. Oh, my God. This just goes to show you that a lot of journalists, you think that they are sharp tacks, but a lot of them aren't. I mean, some are for sure. But you can't always take what they say as the truth. Sometimes we have fake news, not because there is a conspiracy and 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 people wanting to push a false narrative. Sometimes it's just ineptness. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen journalists confuse the national debt with the budget deficit. I mean, they're very different things. And yet the, the terms are often used interchangeably because they don't understand. So and, and the other angle to this I thought was interesting is it's almost this is goes back to sort of an altruistic angle, also a condemning of the rich, you know, he spent $500 million on ads and he did, but she's phrasing it as, well, why didn't he just give it to all of us? Well, what makes you think you're deserving of that money? You know, so this is the whole notion of tearing down the rich and redistributing the rich's money to other people, which I know is a big, uh, a very popular um position, a policy that a lot of the progressives like, which I find abhorrent. I find that to be a direct violation of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is what this podcast is all about. Uh, because I think you can't steal from one group and then pass it out to another. I think that's morally wrong. Um, but still people enjoy you know, what I consider immoral, they consider very moral. Um, and so she's kind of wrapping herself in that. But the, the mathematics, it's just so utterly foolish the way she did this. Um, it's amazing that um, not only did she get away with it, but the national media repeated it. And no one questioned it until finally people in social media were like, hey, dummy, what are you doing? Um now, we're talking about the presidential race. We can't do this without talking about Elizabeth Warren. Um, I've done many podcasts about her. I'm not a fan of Elizabeth Warren because I thought her race was largely about tearing people down. Um, it was a very vindictive uh, campaign message. Um, and granted, I know she wanted to do this for all these wonderful reasons to spread the wealth around. But tearing other people down, I don't think, is the right way to do it. Um, but at any rate, the, the buzz in the media right now is, is that um, some people are saying we no longer have any female candidates. Now, 
Elizabeth Warren is out. We'll never have a woman as president, may not have a woman as president in our lifetime. This proves that the system is, uh, pat- is, is that there's a patriarchy and that the women are discriminated against. And and they just go on and on. And I'm, first of all, I'm thinking, she's not the only woman. What about Tulsi Gabbard? Tulsi Gabbard's still in the race. Tulsi Gabbard has actually earned some delegates, which is good for her. And, and just a little aside on Tulsi, why earning delegates, a lot of people thought she would have qualified for the next debate, but she's not. Remember, I've talked about the system's rigged and the debate system is part of that rigging of it. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard is still... In the race, Tulsi Gabbard has earned delegates, yet she will be kept off the race, off the stage. And this is not only a female candidate, but from a Democratic perspective, this is a female candidate who's a person of color, which you would think the Democrats would be embracing uh, on the identity politics level, which seems to be a driving force, not just amongst liberals, but also amongst conservatives. Um, but I, I know in the end, I think that Warren's campaign failed. Um, you know, back in... The fourth quarter of last year, like October, November, she was in the number one position in the polls. But, you know, she had a plan for everything. And that was a big part of her strategy. I have a plan for that. I have a plan for that. But then when she didn't have a plan on how she was going to pay for Medicare for all, that was a weak point. Now, mind you, Bernie Sanders didn't have a plan for Medicare for all. Um, And Tulsi Gabbard believes, I think she believes in Medicare for all as well. Well, maybe she doesn't. But definitely Bernie did. But Bernie didn't have a plan for it either. But he wasn't challenged at that level because Elizabeth Warren made such a big deal that she has a plan for everything. And if people didn't have plans, she criticized them. You know, she was the the educated candidate, the the candidate that was, you know, she had a plan for that. But she didn't have one to how to pay for Medicare for all. When she finally did release her plan, it was built on a whole bunch of false notions, lies. And and I broke that down in a previous podcast. And then since then, you saw her um saw her position fade away. Um, And really, I think she blew her opportunity. Um, And then another female candidate, Kamala Harris, I think also largely blew her opportunity. Now, if if they were way down in the polls and never were able to rise up, then you might be able to make an argument that there is sexism and misogyny and a patriarchy. And but Kamala Harris was number one in the polls for a while, and so was Elizabeth Warren. So the voters were embracing them initially, but then the more they learned about those candidates and the more those candidates performed, their support went elsewhere. Um, So I think criticizing this on the base of gender bias is wrong. Um, and, And even like the 2016 election, a woman got the most votes for the president of the United States, Hillary Clinton won the um, uh, the popular vote. Now, granted, I know the Electoral College didn't she didn't win it. And that's another way the elections are rigged through the Electoral College where the majority doesn't win it. But if we had a um, a misogynist, um, gender biased, you know, um, now granted, I know there's some of that. There's some gender bias. There's some misogyny. There's some patriarchy. I'm not denying that that exists, but I'm saying it doesn't exist to the degree that it's being spun as, especially right now. I mean, Hillary Clinton got the most votes for president. If we had that degree of sexism, then Trump would have easily won the popular vote too, but he didn't. Um, Now, what's interesting with Elizabeth Warren is that you would think that she would 
come out of this, you know, like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and even Bloomberg were quick to endorse Biden. Warren hasn't endorsed anyone yet. She's holding her cards back. And it makes you wonder because you would think that she would come out and endorse Bernie, but she's not. Now, maybe she eventually will. But as of right now, and it's I don't know what time it is, it's probably about three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, the 6th. Excuse me. Um, she hasn't endorsed anyone. So there's a lot of Bernie fans that are curious and a lot of Bernie fans that are angry with Elizabeth Warren. You know, and these are my friends. I've told you about these hardcore Bernie people. Um, they're angry with Warren because she's not coming out and in, in, from their perspective, doing the right thing. So, again, it's just interesting, kind of shows some of Elizabeth Warren's character. She's already lied. Um, she's already done, um, you know, made a number of distortions. And granted, all these politicians lie. I'm not singling her out. Um, But now she's maybe not offering an endorsement, perhaps where she should. Or is she going to shift gears and and endorse Biden on this? I don't know. We're going to find out. It's curious. Um, So it's going to look like it's going to be Biden versus Trump. And like I said before, I think we're doomed. I I don't support either one of those guys. Um, And, uh, you know, I I told you, I'm, I'm big on individual rights. I'm big on um, uh, limited government, peace, tolerance, free markets. Some of these guys support a little bit of it, but nobody really supports the lion's share of that at all. Um, I mean, President Trump is very anti-free market with his trade war and tariffs and everything else. I mean, I could break it all down and I've done it before. So it's probably going to be Biden and Trump. That means if that's the case, then I'm going to be looking at a third party. I'm going to probably be writing people in. I'm not sure what you're going to do. I, I know that I, I live in the state of California, right? I know that my vote is not going to be the tiebreaker that's going to determine who the president of the United States is. It's not even going to determine how California's electoral college votes are going to be allocated. It's a winner-take-all system all of California's electoral college votes, 100% of them, are going to go to the Democratic candidate, in this case, probably Joe Biden. doesn't matter what I do. If I vote for Biden, I vote for Trump, I vote for someone else, it's going to go to Biden. So I may as well not compromise and say I've got to pick between Biden or Trump because that's my only choice. BS. I'm going to vote for who I believe is best, even if that means it's going to be a write-in. Um, there's, and I, I would encourage you to do the same. If you're struggling with this, not happy Biden or Trump, you don't need to compromise because the state of California is going to go blue no matter what. So you may as well vote your conscience and sleep well at night and know that you didn't have to compromise. And I think that's a good thing. Okay. Um, want to get to one last topic here in the podcast, and I'm going to talk about Ronald Reagan. And um, Ronald Reagan, you know, obviously a beloved president, particularly amongst Republicans. And I remember when this happened. Uh, this was in um, October of 1980. And back then, gosh, I was like 15 years old. I was just starting to pay a little bit of attention to politics then. And um, you know, he was having the debates with uh, Jimmy Carter, and they had multiple debates in October. And in the final debate, in President Reagan's closing remarks, he, he asked the question, he goes, are you better off than you were four years ago? And I, I just thought that is a really great question um, for so many different reasons. Uh, and it's fun to reflect now because you still hear that a lot during election cycles. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Are you better off than you were before 
this president was in place. And uh, I, I always think it's a great question to ask yourself personally. I mean, just set politics aside. Are you better than you were yesterday? You know, and, and I think that's a really healthy way to look at life. It's easy to fall in the trap of comparing yourself to others. Uh, it's easy to fall in the trap to saying, am I better than this guy? Am I better than that guy? How am I doing relative to the people around me? I used to really, really think that way all the time. I mean, I was sometimes um, consumed by it. I still am to a degree, but I'm getting better. What I am realizing is, is I can't compare myself to other people. If I do, it drives me crazy. I can only compare myself to myself. I'm really in a battle with myself to become a better person. So the question is, am I better than I was yesterday? You know, am I incrementally improving every day? And so when the question comes up, are you better off than you were four years ago? I mean, that's just a good question to ask yourself in general, regardless of politics. You know, am I better off financially? Am I better off in my family? Am I better off in my career? Am I better off in my health? You know, am I doing better? That's the measure that we should be asking ourselves regardless of politics. But Reagan, when he asked that question from a political perspective, it was sheer genius the way he did it. Now, it was, it was a great one because it framed him and, and Carter. And it framed Carter in a negative light. Because remember back then, the, um, the economy was you know, going through a turmoil. This is when we were experiencing crazy high um, interest rates, and they even got higher shortly after President uh, Reagan was elected. We had the gas crisis, and there was the Iran hostage crisis, and a bunch of other things. I mean, that's when Jimmy Carter referred to it as a malaise, you know, our economy, uh, which was very uninspiring. Um, and, and just as a, as a tangent, as I've gotten older and I've reflected on the other presidents in my lifetime, I continue to believe that President Carter should be looked upon far more favorably in the rearview mirror than he did at the time. I mean, he was a big for deregulation, which is a, I'm a big supporter of. He deregulated the beer industry amongst the trucking and the airline industry, Got was able to broker peace with Israel and Egypt. There's a lot to like with Jimmy Carter that he often gets a bad rap for. But in the heat of it, in the heat of that election, it was a very difficult economic time. And President Reagan asked the audience and in his closing remarks in the final debate, are you better off than you were four years ago? So, um, you know, and he was always talking about how Carter and his policies were making America weak. And he was pushing for America to be this shining city on the hill, this utopian, um, beautiful America. And he was trying to set up that very simple dichotomy to compare and contrast himself with his opponent. From a marketing perspective, a persuasion perspective, it was genius. And he did it, like I said, in the final debate, in the closing remarks, where Carter really didn't have much of an opportunity to respond to that, because I'm sure he had his own scripted closing remarks. It was done perfectly. But the part that I really want to get to is, is that the way that question is framed is also under the context of, how much of an impact does the president of the United States really have on your life? Is our, our elected leaders, is, is your, let me just say, is your success in life or the failures you experience in life, are those directly related to whomever happens to be in the White House or whomever happens to be the governor or the mayor or the senator? Um, 
how much of your success is dependent on a political leader. And I, I contend if you think that way, then I think you're suffering from far greater problems because we can't – now, granted, I love following politics and politics is important. Politics has an impact on society. Politics has an impact on our culture. Politics is just generally interesting, you know, and there's a lot of really interesting conversations that go around. There's drama. It's like – it's kind of like my reality TV program for me. But really, at the end of it, how much of an impact – does that politician sitting in that seat have an impact on your life? If you think that person is ultimately controlling your fate, then we need to rearrange the way you think on this because your fate is determined by far more uh, influential forces. And the common way that people think normally is this nature versus nurture, right? So nature is... You know, who were you born to? Who were your parents? Um, you know, what what was there? Uh, you know, what are your genetics? Um, are you born to be healthy and strong? Um, are you born into a wealthy family? Do you, were you born into a um, a good community and a good part of the world where there's opportunity? So there's the nature aspect, which is kind of a randomness to how you were born in the in the place you find yourself. But then there's also the nurture side of it, nature versus nurture, the nurture being how were you raised? What were the values and and uh, principles that you were taught as a youngster that have helped shape your life and guide your path forward in life? What kind of education did you get, not only from the local schools, but from the um, the mentors and the other influencers, your parents, um, you know, other people in your community? How were you nurtured? And what plays the greater role? What is determining of your success? And this is a common debate. People say, no, it's nature. You know, people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And that's why people often are attacking the rich and wanting really high inheritance taxes and et cetera. Other people think nature, uh, nurture has a greater impact. A lot of rational people say it's obviously a combination of the two, but to what degree, what proportion. But the part they always leave out is free will. What are the choices that you make in your own life? What are the choices that you make on the people you want to have in your life? The person you choose to be your friends, because your friends, the people you are hanging around with have huge influence in the way you live your life. Who did you choose to be your spouse, to be your life partner? That has a big impact on your life. What career did you choose? Um, what degree did you choose if you were um, fortunate to go to college? And then coming out of college or even coming out of high school, which do, which career path did you choose? And along that way, what critical decisions did you make to put yourself into a position of success? Or what critical decisions did you make that caused failure, that, that caused harm, that set you back? Um, in my opinion, the choices that you make are really what's going to drive your ultimate success. Um, now, I can even take it a step further, and then I'm going to be a little bit brutal here, but you could even say that if you are suffering from a difficult situation in life, I'm going to tell you that it's probably your fault. Um, and I know that's tough medicine, um, but if you are in a bad spot in life, I would suggest that it may be the result of some of the decisions you made along the way. Now, of course, there are exceptions. 
there are certainly people that have been born in a fantastic circumstances and they can fail over and over and over and still have a fat bank account. There are other people that may have been born with disabilities and other challenges. I get it. I understand that. But for the lion's share of people, the vast majority of people, where you are in life, there the, there's nature, there's nurture, and there's free will. I suggest that free will, the choices you make, is a more impactful variable in that equation than nature or nurture. Um, so uh, it comes down to making good choices, making good choices in life. Um, and I, I, I think in my life, I've made a lot of great choices. I've also made a lot of poor choices, choices that I look back in retrospect. You know, we talk, we talk with Pete Neal. He talks about these inflection points, these eureka moments where you make a choice, you get an idea, and it sets your life on a different path. I've made certain choices in my life that have set my life on a great upward trajectory. I've made other choices in life that have flattened that trajectory that have not brought me as much opportunity. And in some cases that have had a downward slope where I've had setbacks because of choices I make. Um, But because I value free will so much is largely why you hear me talk a lot about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because I think you have to have the, if you believe choice is so important then that's why you need liberty, the liberty to choose, the freedom to choose. You need the ability to manage your own life yourself. Um, that's the, the inalienable right to life rather than having someone else managing your life. And you should have the ability to choose your path forward, to live your life according to your own values, to pursue your own happiness. So uh, you'll see, like for me, that's why I find um, – from a big picture perspective, why this notion of individual rights is so important. And then those five principles, individual rights, limited government, peace, tolerance, and free markets, that's the kind of environment that gives the most ability to us to exercise our free will so we can chart our course in life. And to me, that's critical. Um, But politicians, what they'll do is they'll try to frame it where they are the ones that have created these policies that are going to improve your life. And that's what they're always trying to do is trying to sell you on these pitches. But a lot of times they do it at the detriment of damaging the rights of others. That's a lot of what, um, you know, like Medicare for all, for example, people will pitch the great upside to the Medicare for all. And there is some upside to it, but it can only be done by taking away people's ability to choose how to finance their own healthcare needs. Um, it, it restricts choice. It violates people's individual rights in order to serve other benefits. Um, and that's why I have a fundamental problem with Medicare for all for that very reason. But politicians will typically enact higher taxes, greater regulations. There's cronyism that rigs the system. And what they are all, it's all a degree of how much <laughs> they are violating your rights, violating your ability to choose. Um, and that's why I have so much trouble with a lot of these politicians and why I often are, am voting third party or writing people in because they are so aggressively coming after our individual rights, coming after our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so, I don't know, I, in this podcast, I enjoy talking about politics. 
I mean, I, it's topical. It's interesting. I, I, I say I like to make this podcast a bit of a community forum. Um, you know, politics has impact on culture, society. Um, but I really and I need to do more of this is I need to connect it more within the context of how we live our life and how these the, the politicians are damaging our life or maybe in some cases bettering our life. Um, it really has to come down to that is how what are the values that we need to flourish, to live the best val- the life we can? Um, and are these politicians hurting us or harming us? Um, excuse me, are they helping us or harming us? Or are they saying they're helping us, but in reality, they're harming us? And I think we see a lot of that. Um, so I, I, I'm going to say this. If a politician asks you, are you better off than you were four years ago? First, I would say, entertain the question, because it's always a great question to ask from a self-improving perspective. Are you better off? Are the decisions you're making in your life improving your, your situation? But secondly... When you're done figuring out if you're better off than you were four years ago, and if the politician wants to take credit for that, tell them to buzz off. (laughs) Because the reason that you're better off than you were four years ago is largely because of you, because of the choices that you make in your life. So I'd encourage you, we will follow politicians and we like learning and discussing and sure they have impact on our life, but they are not the key variable in the equation. They are not the ones that are driving the bus of our own life. We are, you are. And that's why we have to do as much as we can to empower the individual so they can control our life rather than these yahoos that are getting elected and trying to push their morals on you even if it happens to violate the way that you want to live your life. So, um, wow. We're just going on and on in this podcast. Um, if you if you have thoughts, comments, follow me on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, if you're on YouTube, leave comments in the, in the YouTube channel. I, I enjoy hearing those, and I'll respond to you um, on any of your comments. Um, please subscribe to our mailing list, johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, get on our mailing list, and I'll have this closing quote. It's from Groucho Marx. And... I remember watching Groucho Marx back when I was a little kid. It was like some of the black and white shorts in the movies. Him and his two other brothers. But this is a great quote. Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. (laughs) That's great. So Groucho Marx with some good advice there. I mean, politics often kind of screws things up. Politicians naturally want to divide the society. They want to, um, yeah, they want us to fight amongst ourselves. In some cases, they want to tear people down. And we've talked about some of the politicians that are like that. Um, Politicians will often screw things up more so than make things better. And Groucho Marx hits hits it right on the nail. So this is uh, the John Riley Project, episode number 117, right? That's what I said in the beginning. Yeah, 117. And it's Friday, March 6, 2020. Happy Friday to you. Have a great weekend and we'll be back with you soon. We'll see you later, folks. Bye-bye.